Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, one of your co-hosts, and joined by Tim Chen, my absolute favorite co-host from SNCC. And today we're really excited to have Jeff Cross on the podcast. He's a co-founder and CEO of NX, which has the very interesting tagline of Smart Monorepos Fast CI. And he's going to tell us a lot more about what that means. But first, welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. So let's go back to the very beginning. Can you tell us okay. a bit about where the idea for NX came from? Sure. Yeah, like like most good products, it, it was an accidental idea or something that we didn't plan when we started the company. When we started the company, we my co-founder, Victor Safkin, and I, we worked together at Google on the Angular framework team. So it's a popular JavaScript framework. Victor actually wrote most of the latest version of or like the version two, the big rewrite of it. And we left Google to start consulting for teams who were upgrading from the version one of Angular to the version two that we had just released, which was a big major release. But when we got out there and started working with a lot of Fortune 500s, lots of banks, lots of financial services, other large companies, we saw they were struggling with things that were solved pretty well at companies like Google with monorepos. So there was a lot of disjointed development, integrating different projects that depended on each other would happen late and they would find issues late and the hard things to fix, which just discouraged sharing anything. So there's a lot of duplication of code, a lot of duplication of features, a lot of a lot more maintenance involved. So we started, actually NX was first built just as an extension to Angular CLI because our whole focus was Angular at the time. And we just added some things that made it easier to create multiple projects in the same repository and solve a few of the pains around that. And then that just kind of snowballed over time to where we took on bigger and harder problems as we went. And that was in 2017. So we've been going at it since then. So we'll love to learn about the snowballing, sir. Mm -hmm. um, usually you want to start at the beginning. So you built this because you learned... And you live through that experience. But a lot of people never worked at Google or learned through that experience. So mm -hmm. how did you start like evangelizing this sort of product? Where was the initial starting point? And how did you got your like first, maybe like say a hundred or a thousand users to get excited using it? If you go to Google, a lot of folks may know or may not know Google has one massive monorepo for the whole company, with a couple exceptions, but pretty much every application. Every tool, whatever, is built on a single monorepo. When you commit something, it's going on a flat revision history that is across the whole company. So Google has built a whole stack around that. And it may seem, it was weird when I got there because I'd worked in sloppy monorepos and you know, there's kind of a mixed experience I've, I've had with those. And so going in and seeing that this is how it works was kind of like, really, why? Why is this the case? But then you kind of learn to love it. Most of the time, uh, there's some sometimes where some things are more challenging in a monorepo, but for the most part, the pros, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And actually, the costs are more perception costs. It's actually that you deal with more things at one time. I get into that a little bit later. So it's kind of you're paying for things up front rather than the debt that you accrue from not having a monorepo. But uh, so we, Victor and I both, my co founder and I, both came around to this way of like loving monorepos. And then we got out there and we saw, okay, more people would benefit from monorepos, but they're not very popular. Or it's a controversial thing to suggest outside because the industry had kind of gone from just messy monorepos back in like 2009 or so, and then GitHub and better package managers like NPM for the JavaScript space came about and made it where 
everyone was like, okay, we're splitting everything up. Everything's going to be in its own repository. We're going to package and version things so we can depend on it. And it on paper, it looks like a really great scenario, but it comes with a lot of pains. I feel like I've totally gone off track from what your original question was, but that's kind of where we came in as we saw that there was this big need that had been solved pretty well by companies like Google and, and other companies. And so we came in and we said, okay, we're going to go for it. We're going to try to convince people that monorepos are a good way to solve a lot of these collaboration challenges and other maintenance challenges that they're having at these companies so they can move faster, have lower maintenance burden, get faster time to market, all these things that you get with a faster dev team. So we just started pushing the message and we were lucky because in the Angular community, Victor and I both were pretty well known already. So we produced a lot of content, we gave a lot of talks, people know us from authoring the framework. So we already had their trust that we built good tools and that we understood the needs of the, the community that we were building for. And so that was how our first adopters came around, is the folks in the Angular community who were friends or fans, whatever you want to call them, of work we'd done, were eager to try it and get on board. And also, a lot of Angular projects are for large enterprise companies. So they tend to have the problems that are solved best by monorepos. Everyone benefits from monorepos, but it's exceptionally painful to solve the issues at a large company with hundreds of developers on a single code base. So I think this is a good time to talk about the benefits and potential drawbacks of a monorepo versus multi-repo. And maybe early on, are there certain kinds of applications that it works best for? And what would be kind of like the counter to a monorepo, like certain applications for X reasons, it just wouldn't work that well? So the pros are... I think the biggest one is that everything is integrated right away. So you get lots of benefits just from that property of monorepos. Because you've got everything in a single repository, you're depending directly on things inside your repo, not some published versioned uh, copy of, of something you're depending on. So versions are something that make it difficult to guarantee compatibility between projects. If you have an app that's depending on... Uh, it's, it's hard to do. There's like a diamond dependence. Just imagine a diamond and imagine it's bad. So one of the things of monorepos is there are no versions of anything. Everything is a single version. Even your third-party dependencies tend to be a single version shared across the whole monorepo. And one of the things that guarantees is compatibility. So anything within that monorepo, you don't have to worry about it using an incompatible version of some library. You know that everything in the monorepo works together. So that's a big guarantee. But another side of everything being integrated constantly is you catch issues right away, assuming you've got good tests or some good QA process. So if there's like a design system is a good example of if there's some complicated widget in a design system and you have it in a separate repository, you publish it, some team waits six months to integrate it because whatever product demands just never made it a priority. And they find an issue with this widget that not enough other people are using or something, but the design system team has already been working past that. They've stacked a whole bunch of commits on top of it. That's a really difficult bug to fix at that time. It can be anyway. Design systems may be not as hard as like complex business logic. But uh, the earlier you find the bug, the cheaper it is. There's some paper floating around with a graph of like each stage of uh, when you catch a regression, how much more costly it is. And no one knows the actual original source. It's supposed to have come from IBM research. But anyway, there is a good paper if you want to look it up. But I think everyone knows that the later you catch something, it's going to be significantly more difficult to go back and fix the issue in the design system than test it again with whatever consumers are depending on it and have that back and forth to then like make it work. Whereas in a, in a monorepo, the commits happen at the same time. The tests for the 
consumer applications all run at the same time. So you're validating your code across all the consumers who are in the monorepo. So those, those are a couple of the main benefits. The places where it solves the biggest pains are large code bases or large teams. By the way, I should step back and clarify. One of the things when we do monorepos is we define them as a repo that has distinct but related projects. And the related is also, uh, like not every project has to relate to every other project in the monorepo. But with the companies using NX compared to Google, most companies have many monorepos. So a line of business will have their own monorepo, or maybe an organization will have their monorepo. Maybe a team will start with a monorepo and gradually move other teams into it as it makes sense. The benefit comes from things that are related and integrated often. That's where you can kind of draw the lines and say, these benefit from being together. Maybe some things don't make sense in the monorepo. Like if they're unmaintained or they're just totally outside of our team and we only use their product every once in a while, we can afford to just integrate it once a year, twice a year, something like that. So that's one thing that we get a lot when talking about monorepos, where it can really be anything you want. A single application could be a monorepo if you divide it into composable units. But the best use cases where you feel the most pain of non-monorepos are portal applications, like applications where it's an application of many applications. And I feel like every financial services company and every bank has one of these, or at least one of these. There's usually one that's like the public-facing one, and then there's one that's like the logged-in user one or other users where they're, they're all interacting with the same type of things. Airlines are another good example, but banks, I think, are the biggest example. You've got your mortgage line of business, you've got your credit cards, you've got personal banking, commercial banking, whatever, that users are logging into a single app to interact with all these, but different teams are responsible for those different experiences. But being in a monorepo, one big thing it does is it makes it where to make something shared is free in a monorepo. If I'm at a bank and I wanted to have a transaction service that tells me the list of recent transactions, that's probably the same model that all teams are talking to or the same kind of backend that they're talking to. You could have one JavaScript service interacting with that or whatever other kind of service you're building. But because if you were doing it in separate repos where each line of business was in a different repo they would probably re-implement that same service every time rather than create a shared one. Because to create a shared repository of transaction service would require you to set up publishing, documentation, versioning, and uh, CI for testing, or some way of testing, even if uh, you're just testing it locally. So it's a lot of things you have to think about. And because there's that friction, nobody does it because incentives aren't aligned at most product organizations where they're just trying to move fast. But in a monorepo, you just create a new folder and you've got something that's shareable if you want it to be. One of the things we do is we help manage what you want to be shareable in what ways by other projects within the workspace so that you don't have to worry about every little experiment you create being dependent on by someone that you now have to support. So those are the places where it's the most painful. But once you get a custom monorepos, they're great for anything. So even if just one application at a startup if you've already bought into the concepts, you know it. There's no overhead to just using a monorepo from the start. And I think the onus needs to be on not having a monorepo or proving that you don't need a monorepo. The one example that is actually the most true of where monorepos don't do well is if parts of your code base are so sensitive that you don't want contractors or certain parts of the company to see it, because monorepos are pretty transparent. There's tooling and things you can do to work around that, but out of the box, there's, that's just kind of a hard problem. And so a lot of teams will generally just say, 
let's have a main monorepo, have this part as, as the only separate part so that we can just make it easy to say, give access to the people building that. We integrate it frequently, but everything else is in a monorepo. That's probably the most legitimate case where monorepos are more difficult. So teams where there's a lot of transparency have a lot easier time moving to monorepos or adopting the lifestyle of monorepos than teams where there's a lot of control over what folks can see. I think monorepo definitely is a debate for a while for a lot of people like, okay, how do you, should you host and choose different things? But I think the other aspects is there's actually already some other choices in terms of product and projects you can use with monorepos. And I think your website, you compare yourself to Turbo. People have been talking about Bazel. There's like a different tool choices, right? So I'm really curious about for NX, you coming into the market, it sounds like Angular of frameworks of the people is where you start because people already know you. But how did you get them to know you of what? Like, how did you tell people like NX is the best choice for you? You don't have any Angular specific features there at all, right? So mm-hmm. it seems like the focus is mostly around speed and some other things. So maybe talk about how have you started to get people to say, oh, this is the best tool, I should use it. And how did you iterate from there and to yeah. slowly build up something people can tell quickly? So originally when we came out, there was Bazel from Google, and that's what we used when we were at Google. And a lot of what NX does is inspired by Bazel. Like we've got a lot of the same optimizations as Bazel. At the time, it was pretty rough to use, especially for JavaScript. And it's still rough to use for JavaScript compared to other languages that it has really great support for. The JavaScript ecosystem is just a totally different beast. And so we started with Angular. The first thing that drew people to it was just that you could have multiple projects building together and depending on each other, but also being separately publishable. Whereas other things like Lerna, which we maintain Lerna now, but it was it was a tool that preceded us. It treated everything as packages with versions within the monorepo. So it wasn't like a pure monorepo where you actually have a single version with everything depending on each other internally. And so that, that was one of the things that we made it where we made TypeScript configuration really easy for that. And also the build configuration with Angular CLI, we made it support that really well. And then we introduced some optimizations pretty early on. The first one being affected. So you can run affected commands with NX to say, compare these two hashes, these two commits, and see what's changed between them. And look at the project graph that NX has and see what could be affected by that change. So the projects themselves that you change code in and whoever depends directly or transitively on those projects would be affected and needs to be retested, rebuilt, all those things. So that was the first step to making it where your code base could grow and your build times wouldn't grow proportionately to your code base, except in worst case scenarios where you do have to build the entire monorepo. So that's how we first differentiated. Turbo repo is similar scope to Lerna. The main thing it does that NX does is task caching. It does not a slightly different way. We just prioritize certain other things that our customers need with caching, like more predictability and avoidance of false positives, false negatives. But Turbo Repo is more of a package-based build system versus we're more of a graph-based build system where we think in terms of graphs, whereas something like Lerna, something like Turbo Repo, they're more like a list of distinct packages where you maybe have like 5, 10, something in that versus an NX graph, which has hundreds of projects for most teams building applications. So like a Turbo Lerna model fits pretty well for open source projects where the big focus is publishing versioned packages for people to depend on. Whereas our focus has always been, the primary use case has always been building big applications or big experiences across large organizations with consistency. Bazel, we're friends with lots of folks also working on Bazel and Bazel companies. 
And it's a super powerful tool. They do have great support for backend, whereas our support, we're both generic tools. We just have different focuses. So our, our support has been focused on JavaScript from the beginning and gradually becoming more generic and more support for backend frameworks and languages and technologies. So that's kind of the difference. This is a whole other story, but we were actually planning to build NX on top of Bazel originally. And we were working with the team at Google on it. Just never got ready. And we kept revisiting this over a series of years where we kept wanting to introduce a Bazel flavored version or, or just move NX being based on Bazel. But the experience was just never there for the JavaScript community, especially Windows and JavaScript are just two things that make Bazel painful. Maybe this is better now. So I'll say made Bazel painful at the time. So we said, okay, we've got to build some of this stuff ourselves because we can't give the same experience as we want to if we were using Bazel. And so we started building in. Over time, the thing that really drew people was the scalability is one thing, but the speed of CI was the thing that people get most excited about now. It's like, okay, we, we agree monorepos. Now who's the fastest or who's going to make us the fastest? And that's that's where we really shine. We have the same optimizations as Bazel, but done in a really simple way. Like with it, we have the distributed caching, distributed task execution, similar to remote build execution with Bazel. I'm getting a little too in the weeds on, on Bazel. So if, you, if you're a build system nerd, then you probably know what I'm talking about. But so we, we have the same ideas just done in a different way where you lose a tiny bit of the power of Bazel that you can configure really granularly. But most teams don't need that. And you still get the performance. You just say, okay, we'll give up a little bit of control to NX and go along with NX's way of doing things for the sake of simplicity and, and just making things fast. So I want to talk a bit about NX's growth trajectory because the project looks like first release was in 2017. And then it was really like 2020, 2021, where it started to take off. Can you talk a bit about timing of it? And did it just feel like it was a lot of market education because you did have to convince people that this was the right approach? And what changed? Like, were there a few viral posts? Did you just get to kind of critical mass? Like what really, when you think back to the like growth trajectory changing, like what did you do to actually get NX there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the only thing that's really been a moment other than the initial launch was when we decided to go beyond Angular. So for the first maybe two years of its existence, it was just for Angular developers and built with Angular CLI. And at some point we said, this doesn't make sense that it's just for Angular. This solves problems across the spectrum. Let's branch out. Let's, let's, uh, start adding support for React being the other big framework, probably bigger than Angular at the time and still bigger. And so we said, okay, let's do what we need to to uh, make this a great experience for React. So the different React frameworks, different React tools. We had React folks working at the company and Victor and myself have always followed React very closely. So it was actually a pretty easy thing for us to take on. And I think that was an inflection point where it made us do things differently that that we'd previously just accepted as somewhat awkward experiences because we were on Angular CLI, it kind of gave us permission to ourselves to say, okay, let's build everything without any dependencies on Angular CLI, still be compatible for, for Angular developers, but do things how we think they should be done for our types of users. And so that was kind of a turning point where we started taking more control of our stack. We started being a little bit more, I don't want to say prescriptive, but but a little bit more stern, like we took a stand for what the dev experience should be and held ourselves to higher standards. So I think that was a big thing. And that forced us to also make the core of NX generic to where 
nothing was baked into the core. Everything was a plug-in to the core. So Angular support is a plug-in. React support is a plug-in. And the core doesn't know anything about these languages. But the plugins can help the core understand what is the graph of dependencies, what depends on what. You don't have to know how I know this, but just trust me, I'm telling you that these are how projects relate to each other. And that was a big thing that enabled us to experiment with other plugins without having to change the core and to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and and just gradually improve it without being constrained by other projects that, that we depend on. I will say AngularSci is a great team. They're, they're doing great things. We just are solving different problems. Got it. So I think now you've grown the project. You identify like a pretty nice insertion point, but also building a differentiation with the speed and other things. What were some of the key challenges, I guess, you faced? even going beyond sort of like the early growth? Because I think when it comes to CI-related products and projects, I think everybody has a lot of opinions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think nobody truly has converged a lot. I think I've never seen one project everybody uses. There's always going to be somebody who hates it, somebody likes it or not. So I'm sure there's probably a lot of noise. So maybe talk about like, what are the biggest challenges you faced when it comes to like really focusing on the growth side? And some stuff you learned during those days as well. Yep. So we started off as a consulting company. And for the first several years, three years, four years, we experimented with some different products around Angular that didn't really pan out, that had nothing to do with NX. Like we started by offering Angular support as like a you know SLA-based and developer support. We did okay with that, but it didn't really scale much. And then we tried some other things in the same vein that didn't pan out. And so... Consulting was always our fallback, and we had a pretty successful consulting business. We always had more demand than, than we could handle. So as a consulting company, it was great. I've been involved with several consulting companies, and this one was a lot easier than any of the other ones because we were so differentiated. Like we maintained Angular and NX. So so if you want the best, then we're the best to go to. But the commercialization of both was always challenging. And we we finally committed to doing something in 2020 that's still our main product, which is NX Cloud. And basically what we said is, we looked at what we were doing as an open source build system and said, what if we had a cloud component to this? Like what more power could we add to NX? And turns out there was a lot that we could do out of the box really simply by just enabling NX in your project. And the first big thing it did was distributed caching. So if I run a build on my computer, the output of that build, so like the files that are outputted and also the process logs outputted will be stored somewhere. And then if somebody builds that part of my code base at the same hash, it'll just replay that. So if the CI environment is rebuilding at the same hash, it's just going to replay the work I've already done. It's just going to download the files, print out the log as if you just ran it on that computer, but it's going to take one second instead of two minutes or five minutes, however long it took the first time. So this is something that you can just add to NX and it worked out of the box. Very few learnings from that. That just happened to work really well because we already had local caching for a long time in NX. So we've added some things over time. One of the things, our go-to-market with that was kind of painful because a lot of our customers, users back then, were enterprise. And that's still where we focus a lot of our time is enterprise. And a lot of our, our biggest customers are still large enterprise, Fortune 500 companies. But uh, we built this as a hosted cloud product and most enterprises, this is less true now than it was back then. But back in the 2010s, five years ago, they were a lot more reserved about using a hosted solution versus running something on their own cloud, which we didn't support. And so 
if they're going to be uploading cache artifacts to our cloud, for some people, that was a deal breaker. And some, it just required very thorough security vetting. And so we, we started to get some people using an xCloud, but the big people with the big checkbooks were slower to be able to adopt it. They wanted it. They saw the value of it. But uh, actually getting it in their hands required us to retool some things, both in uh, how the application works and being able to deploy it as an on-prem or self-hosted solution and a few other things along the way. And so we figured those things out. Now it's like we've got a pretty well-oiled machine, but there's always more things. Like right now, we're expanding a lot deeper into CI, whereas historically, we've been kind of an add-on to CI. And now we're becoming more of a full CI replacement for people who are using NX, where we can be a lot faster, cheaper, simpler than what they're doing now. One of the challenges with being an additive to CI has been that when we're selling, for people where we're actually selling contracts to instead of just self-serve SaaS users, Sometimes we're having to sell to two completely separate teams. We've got to sell to the product team who's really pulling us, and we've got to sell to IT who's got to implement us. And sometimes there will be some tension inside the company of whose budget is paying for what, or is this all coming from my budget? Do we need to split it? Those things can slow deals down. That is one thing that, uh, as we get deeper into CI, is uh, still an issue. But we're more saying you can move more stuff to us if you want to instead of having to figure out in IT, like how does this work with what we already have, product can still say, no, we want to use the whole solution. And part of the benefit of working with product teams is they tend to have a lot of leverage at companies. If they say, we really need this tool, then a lot of times IT will just make it work for them. You know, they'll, they'll do what it takes to make it happen. And we, we add a lot of value to product teams to help them get stuff to market faster, which turns into big money for the, the company and happier developers who aren't waiting forever for CI to finish. So you have some really big logo companies like Capital One, VMware. I'm curious how you learn to support that scale of companies and also the sales process, because that's not trivial, especially if you are selling to a different kind of head versus who's using your open source, like it isn't as linear. So how have you learned that? And is there anyone on the team that you brought on who has done a lot of like more enterprise sales before? Yeah. So we got kind of lucky that when we started, the companies who would hire us for consulting were these large enterprise companies. And so we had to learn how to sell services to enterprise, which is different from selling licenses or product to enterprise. But we learned a lot. I did sales for the first five years of the company. And then we brought in some other folks to professionals to come in and help to scale it better and help to seize more opportunities from it. But we learned the procurement cycles, the, the how to negotiate, the typical politics of purchasing within companies and, and uh, found ways to win for everybody, you know, to work with procurement, to satisfy the things they're looking for, to make the value proposition clear. So all that we learned during consulting. And so the main thing when we started selling subscriptions to these companies was we just, you use a different master agreement most of the time and you have a different form. We started using our own paper instead of uh, customer standard boilerplate master agreements. And so, yeah, we kind of got lucky in a lot of regards. One, that we already had a massive open source community when we moved into product and you know eventually raised funding as well. And uh, that we already knew kind of how to sell these companies and had relationships at a lot of these companies already. I know you talked about like the features and sort of the push to actually gain adoption, but you have a lot of different kinds of content. I want to maybe talk about like what has been the most effective for you. Like a lot of YouTube channels actually realized, a lot of conference talks that you recorded. 
I'm sure every one of them has helped, but what are the things that are most effective for you? What is maybe a general strategy of actually doing evangelism? And what is the most effective, either pieces of content or channels that has helped the most for you? Sure. Yeah, we've tried a lot of different stuff over the years. What initially helped us was Victor blogged a lot. And he blogged really in-depth articles about architecture of Angular, how to do specific things, and then like start doing an X blogs as well. That was the early thing. He also wrote some books. I technically co-wrote one of them, but it was 99% him. And that was a thing that people ate it up. They liked it. They knew if they wanted to hire somebody to help with these things that we blogged on, that's how we generated some business. Like we wrote about different strategies for upgrading to Angular, and that drove some of our initial consulting where they're like, we like this idea. We'd really like some help doing it though, so that we you know, don't spend three months stepping on our toes trying to figure out the right way to do it. So that was one of the first ones. Then we started experimenting with, we had to have good docs. And so that was the next big thing. That's not so much about getting people in the door so much as it is keeping them happy about NX. Some may look at docs thoroughly before joining, but we've always placed a high priority on good documentation. And NX, it has a large surface area because we've got the core of NX that's very simple and does simple things. But then we have lots of plugins, both that we maintain and that the community maintains. And then we have lots of different tools, different CI environments, different source control that you may be working with that we want to show you the tips and tricks to integrate with those. So we've got lots of things we want to enable people to do and keeping that organized without overwhelming people is pretty tough. But we spend a lot of time on that in particular to make it easy for them to find what they want and to not make them think like they're lost in this big sea of all these things NX can do. So that, you know, when we started NX, that was just table stakes. Like we have to have good docs and it was easy at first. It gets harder as the scope grows. But more recently in the past couple of years, we've focused more on video content, on tweet content. We've got a team, uh, Yuri Strumpflunner and uh, Isaac Mann and Zach DeRose are kind of our, I call them DevRel. I think they call themselves Dev Experience Team. They don't just do DevRel, but they've been really focusing on new content, on better docs, on tweeting more often. Caitlin Cashin is also part of that team. She's kind of split between teams. So, so we, we start doing more of that. And those things are pretty good. Like our YouTube has been growing because of the consistency and the improving quality of videos. The key to that has been getting the right people in the right places. So figuring out what people's strengths are and who belongs in what roles, both for content creation as well as strategy for those things. And we've got a pretty solid team in place now that's really doing well. But I'll say one of the surprising things that a lot of people write off with getting the message out is just going to conferences, even if we're not getting a talk. If we get a talk, it's even better. But just sponsoring a conference or being at a conference, us getting to talk to people about NX and monorepos face-to-face is really effective because they may never see your docs. They just have notions of why monorepos are a bad idea and may not explore any further than that. But being in person gives you a real chance to talk through those things. And a lot of people say, or you may say, that doesn't scale. You know, you're talking to, maybe I talk to 20 people myself when I go to a conference. But the thing is that those 20 people are self-selected extroverts who are likely to go back to their teams and tell them what they think about things to say, okay, I saw an X, they show me how it works. I think it could be useful for this. So you have to not just look at, okay, there are 200 people at this conference and a thousand people may watch the videos. No, look at who's represented at the conference and, you know, talk to those people. And, but that's been a really 
a really key thing that I I almost don't want to say because it's kind of a secret strategy that, that a lot of people write off. But yeah, conferences are, have been a huge thing from day one of the company. We've, we've been at conferences and that's really been great for the business. I love that. The self-selected extroverts, which I totally, totally agree with. I want to talk a bit about what it means for NX to have a great developer experience. And you talked about docs. Earlier, you said that the goal was to bring a great developer experience to monorepos. I'm sure that's part of convincing folks that this is the right approach. We hear folks on this podcast all the time talk about their products having a great developer experience. And depending on the space, it means something different. So what, what does that mean for you and for NX? So the thing that we're popular for is the speed. And that's not even the coolest part, I think. I mean, that is really important. It's, there's a lot of value in it. But some of the other things we do are pretty interesting. So plugins, like I mentioned before, are how you get different specific functionality into NX. You can write your own plugins too. And so one of the nice things about plugins is they come with executors or things that will build or test things. And the other side is generators, which generate code for you. And one of the nice things of this, so like with Angular, with the Angular plugin we have, you can run generate component and it'll generate component in a way we think is good. And you can say generate a storybook for this or generate Cypress tests or, and, and it'll generate code in a smart way that's not just string manipulation, but actually understands kind of your graph and your code and updates it for you. So one of the nice things about that is one, if you just use the off-the-shelf plugins, then you at least get consistency. You're getting Components generated the same way. But actually, I'll say one thing. Another thing that is undersold with NX is automatic migrations. So we have an Angular plugin that's tied to a specific version of Angular. And when Angular updates major or minor version, we'll update our plugin and we have these migrations that we write as part of the plugin that you just upgrade to the new plugin and we'll rewrite as much of your code as we can based on API changes or new recommendations for the framework. So Angular, React, like every plugin we do, we include these migrations that run step-by-step across your code base because we do understand your code pretty well. We're able to, of course, parse your code and understand what symbols you're using where, what imports you're using. So we're able to do this and it saves a ton of time. There's Most of the time, people don't need to do anything other than just run our upgrade and automatic migrations. So that's a huge undersold. I think that's one of those things that seems too good to be true. So people are skeptical of it, but it's actually a huge benefit. But the other part of plugins that's a benefit is teams build their own plugins and they compose other plugins generators into their own plugins. So like a team may say, okay, we want everyone who's on our team, when they generate components, we want them all to have Jest tests and Cypress tests and some kind of documentation with them. So let's compose these plugins from three different plugins and also generate some other files like a readme for this plugin or something like that, or some other lint rules that you could have. And that guarantees that one, there's a lot of consistency within the monorepo. So things that are prone to inconsistency, you can control with that by saying, use this plugin. And we make it pretty easy to parameterize those plugins, both with the command line and our IDE tool called NX Console, where people can just type things in a form and then it's going to generate things exactly how you want them to. That's a huge thing. And teams can also write their own migrations. So if they're making some big change, they can update the whole monorepo and also publish their plugin to their internal package registry so anyone can update the plugin and run the migrations themselves on a separate monorepo. So that's the thing that organizations who are standardized on NX across many teams, they have common plugins that they share for things that are common so that they can have some economies of scale across the company. 
there are a bunch of other things that I won't get into on the scale side, but I, I would say that's the biggest differentiator is we focus a lot on scale and that's part of it. There's also things, like I mentioned earlier, of controlling how projects can depend on each other. So you can say this can only be depended on by projects with these tags or lots of things like that. And also different linting rules and things that just make it easier to grow the team and the code base without the pains that usually come with something growing with many different teams working together in the same place. So I want to ask about NX Cloud. Well, if you're interested to learn more, your choice of what's actually a commercial product here. And I've seen other sort of like Bazel type products in the past before. What I noticed is most of them went down to just build a CI completely. So you don't actually use any of your CI products anymore, replaces it completely. But I noticed that at least for NX Cloud, it works on top of all your CI products, actually. So still use your CI and then use NX Cloud for you know distributed task execution, caching, other things. So one is like, talk about what, what is the choices you made to build what's proprietary and why did you make it not a full-on replacement, but rather yeah. a layer in the middle? So the, the history is that we knew we wanted to build some product for CI. And we started building it when we were bootstrapped and still self-funded. And we were profitable, but not able to like take the whole team off of consulting and say, let's all go all in on product. And so we came up with something that highly leveraged the value we could provide without the effort being proportionate to the value. And so to build something that could be added to CI was the easiest way we could go to say, just add this. You don't have to get rid of anything. You don't have to replace anything. You don't have to convince IT to drop what they're doing. It's like, no, just add this and it's going to make your CI faster. And it's going to help your team move faster, have more understanding of what's happening in your builds, all these kinds of things. That's a big reason why we started that way, just out of practicality, that we didn't want to take too big of a risk. Uh, and uh, it's a good thing we didn't because there are a lot of things about the sales of CI that we hadn't learned at that point and would have had a long time of figuring out. And you know, you know how enterprise sales cycles go. The enterprise sales cycles on top of us making the product that they wanted would have taken a year or so. So that's how we started. It was easy, I think, is the biggest thing. Like We just built a tool that could integrate. And uh, we didn't seek like to build our own CI and our own compute. But over time, we just saw how much better we could do it. If you're using NX or even just a little bit of NX, we can make it where there's lots of things we can do based on just being a little bit more prescriptive than a generic CI tool. We can distribute things automatically without any configuration. We know how your projects depend on each other. We know how long different tasks take to run. We know what's affected in this build. If you give us some machines, we can figure out how to split the work across those machines in the most optimal way to whatever agents you're running, they'll finish it about the same time. Doing that in other CIs is more complicated, but when doing it on our compute, it really is zero config. Like you just say, distribute this across this many machines. We spin up the machines, we maintain them, we shut them down when, when we can, which just turns into a lot simpler. You don't have to configure as much. We're a lot more efficient time-wise and cost-wise, and so faster being the big thing, especially if you're rebuilding the whole repository, like those worst-case scenarios where, okay, we've touched something that everything depends on, then the distribution is your only savior. And uh, if you're using our cloud or our CI, you don't have to think about it. It's going to look like it's all running on a single agent, but just much faster. 
All right. So last question, we would love to hear what advice you would have for either yourself earlier on in your journey or an open source founder that's pretty early on in their journey. Well, lots of things. There's a lot of general things I would give, like, don't be afraid to wear a bunch of hats and learn new things. Like I didn't have that much sales experience when I started the company, but learned and it's actually pretty interesting. So a lot of things like that, that maybe don't seem exciting, uh, but they're actually really fun. And like fun engineering challenges too, to figure out how to make a complex deal go through. I would say on the funding side of things, one of the things that I didn't properly assess every six months or so, Victor and I would say, should we raise funding and go for something? And it was always kind of like, no, we don't really see the purpose. Like we don't need the money. We, we're still trying things out. We want room to experiment. But I probably would have raised a little bit earlier as we started seeing more traction in the open source product. One, just to be able to focus more energy on it, to have more folks not working on consulting, but working on product. But a big aspect of investors that I undervalued was the relationships they have, the advice they have, the experience they have. That's just been a huge advantage to us since we did raise our first round last year. And they've been able to cut time for us by helping us avoid mistakes and helping us know the right ways to focus to scale and the right people to talk to, to figure out things out, to get deals done. Just tons of resources available. If you get good investors like we do with uh, Nexus Venture Partners and A16Z, as well as a bunch of angel investors who are super helpful. Awesome. Well, there are so many awesome nuggets in here for other open source founders. Thank you so much for doing this with us, Jeff. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you. This was great. 